Okay, we are live with Kiana Patterson, hey, managing Joe. partner at Naya. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Joe. I really uh, appreciate it. I'm glad to be here on this uh, a little foggy day here in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. You. It's a nice it's a nice change from like the the heat wave we've been having. Um, thank you for visiting us in Berkeley. Yeah, totally. Uh, y- you. I just want to say something about you from the get-go, which is you have one of the best reputations in venture that of like almost anyone I know. Um, And I can't tell you how many founders, operators, investors um, I've mentioned your name to, and they they kind of stop me and their eyes light up and they're like, Kiana is amazing. (laughs) You're making me blush already. That's... um... That's amazing. It's true. And, yeah. and um, you introduced me to someone recently, and um, they said on, the, on our, my first phone call, anytime Kiana introduces me to someone, I take the phone call, sight unseen, um, and, I, and uh, no matter what. Why, why is that? Mm. Why do people why say do, that about me? Why do, yeah, why do people, why are you so different? Ooh, um, I think integrity matters. Um, and I think that doing good things and being a good human is, um, is the right thing to do. And if you grow up like me with humble beginnings, like that's all you know, is like sort of like what's that boomerang effect, right? If you put out good in the world, then what will come back to you? And so I'm always sort of championing uh, for the little people or those people that are least likely to uh, get access uh, because I was once and sometimes still am that person as well. Mm. That's my why. I believe you. You you also strike me as someone who just um, like what you say is like it, it's it's for real. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sort of an underdog. So I just feel like, what do I have to lose? Right. I might as well just say the things that need to be said. And I think that's super important. Time is fleeting. We don't have much time in this world and and uh, I want to maximize the amount of time that I have remaining and I better use it the best way I know how to and and part of that is just saying the things that need to be said um, um, but in a loving you know kind human empathetic way but definitely it's important to say and do the things that are most urgent I love that I love that. Um, well, I, I I always enjoy our conversations, and um, and and that's why I was so excited to have you here. Um, so we actually met through Cap Table Coalition, an organization we've both been a part of. Um, in my view, it was kind of a strange series of events that led us together. So just the backstory on my side, and I want to hear your side too. But like on my side is I was doing some work with Black VC. Mm-hmm. I was putting on virtual events, um, and a news story caught my attention. It was uh, the announcement that. Richie Cerna at Phoenix uh, was raising this uh, very competitive Series B round. I think Lightspeed was uh, one of the leads. And he made it a point to allocate some of the round for diverse investors from his network. Mm -hmm. And so that got big publicity on TechCrunch. And then around the same time, there was another gentleman named uh, Derek Anderson from Bevy that was doing something similar with his Series C round Mm -hmm. led by Excel. And that inspired me to reach out to both of them. I had met Richie once before, Derek I, I hadn't known, um, and uh, to, to put on an event to mm-hmm. kind of explore this, this idea. And when I talked to Richie, he said, oh, let me introduce you to Emmanuel and tell you about the Cap Table Coalition. I said, mm-hmm. well, what's that? Um, and then Emmanuel said, oh, this sounds like a great event you're putting on. Um, it would be great to add Kiana. Let me introduce you to Kiana. So, we ended up having the event with Richie, yourself, uh, and Derek, and it was a big hit. Um, and then, and then I was invited to join the investment committee of Cap Table Coalition. Um, so we've been able to work together in that yeah. organization for uh, over a year now. Over a year. Um, so for the audience who doesn't know as well mm-hmm. as I do, what is Cap Table Coalition? Okay, Cap Table Coalition is uh, basically a grassroots initiative between, um, like you said, uh, initially Richie Cerna, who's the founder and CEO of Phoenix, um, and several others who came together and said, you know what, part of the way that we are going to build generational wealth and diversify cap tables and do all these things that most marginalized people don't get access to do and have is by diversifying cap tables. And the way that we could essentially do that is 
by getting um, founders to push for greater diversity on their cap tables. Um, and it was originally, um, uh, how it all started was Alejandro Guerrero from uh, Act One uh, Ventures, which is an LA-based VC fund. Who's a Alejandro is a partner there. He wrote the diversity rider in the summer of uh, 2020. It was his way of sort of doing something. Um, and we all know what was going on that summer. And, um, you know, Richie was in their portfolio. Phoenix was in the portfolio of Act One. And Richie, because he has humble beginnings, he said, I absolutely, at his Series B, said, I want to do this. Um, and as a result, we were able to raise $3 million. Uh, it was a diverse group of people that came together. I was one of the um, uh, co-managers of that SPV. And... Um, what happened was it got publicity, as you said, and um, more founders came to Richie and said, how did you do this? And CapTable didn't exist. We just had this desire to diversify cap tables, one with the, you know, writing on the diversity writer um, and founders who were pushing for that. And Richie basically said, well, there are these epic humans, these amazing people who volunteer their time. You should talk to them. And that is how, that's the origin of Cap Table Coalition. We just said, what is this? Who, who are we, right? And we're this coalition of people who want to diversify cap tables. And so that was the, that's the birth story of Cap Table uh, Coalition. We, you know, we started with about 80 or so people, and now we're nearing 800 people who are now a part of this coalition, um, which is really exciting to see. We went from, you know, investing in one company to investing in more than 30 companies, uh, deploying uh, nearly $27 million in the last year. And that's with no fund. That's just, again, all volunteers, all of us just like, you know, doing the work uh, to, to really get um, access to amazing deal flow and pooling our resources together and our time uh, to do this collectively. Amazing, amazing. And you've been one of the most active members of the investment committee. Can you talk a little bit about some of the companies you know you've you've led uh, the investments into? Yeah. Um, Probably too many at this point. <laughs> I always sort of wince when people go, you're the most active one. And I go, yeah, and I don't know how I actually find time to do all of it. Um, yeah, like um, uh, Tradewell, uh, TRM Labs. Um, there's also, what else, Electio, Charger Help. There's a number of companies, um, and it ranges from early stage to series B or C, so later stage. Um, I'm most passionate about founders that really are like deeply like uh, entrenched in the problem that they're solving, that we like click, um, you know, they can really understand like the purpose and the reason why CapTable exists, and they're really aligned to that. but. Um, like I have a really good understanding of what they are trying to build and how they are trying to build it. Um, and it, it just, you know, it's for many of these founders, it just makes sense. My background is in B2B SaaS and, and ops and strategy. And so like when I can really understand the model and the space it's in and there's some spark about that founder, then I want to like lead the charge in, in um, raising money for them. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. And, and I've, I've kind of had the chance to uh, lead a few. Um, so, so my first one was uh, Career Karma. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second one was Brex mm -hmm. that I led with Tommy. And then the third one we actually led together. We did. Which is a, a stealth company. It is. Can't talk too much about. Cannot. But uh, focused on women's health. Yeah. And I'm um, really excited about that one. Um, you mentioned, you know, you don't know how you do it all, mm -hmm. right? And I wanted to ask you about that, right? Because you are managing partner at NIA. Mm -hmm. You're founding general partner at Tama Capital. Mm -hmm. uh, you're involved with a whole... Uh, a bunch of other organizations. Mm -hmm. How do you, for, first off, can you kind of help describe some of these yeah. organizations and like how do you kind of manage all these projects? Yeah, so, um, you know, my day job is as managing partner um, for NIA. I am leading investments. And um, NIA is interesting because 
um, it, it really aligns to, again, sort of my values and core mission around um, how do we ignite and how do we um, support um, and back some of the most phenomenal founders who also happen to be minoritized. And, and we use that word very specifically because a lot of us and people that look like me are not really truly minorities. Women aren't minorities in this country, right, in this world. Um, but we have been made to be minoritized as a group of people. And so, um, you know, the work of Naya is really to like think about communities, to think about well-being, um, holistic well-being, financial well-being. And so how do we back um, founders who have been minoritized? How do we sort of back, you know, things that we believe are really going to be impactful from direct investments into companies, supporting and helping growing as a studio as well, growing um, ideas with founders from the ground up and also making uh, direct investments as an LP into emerging fund managers as well. So we do quite a bit, um, which it's all in alignment to the work that I do also then with Cap Table Coalition. So your your question around like, how do I do it? You know, it, probably fundamentally it's the why, right? There's so much alignment to the work of Naya and the work of Cap Table Coalition that it's something that because it's so aligned it it seems to me like all one big thing right and i just you know find time in the evenings to like you know develop memos to really dive into um a, a an industry or a, a particular model um and you know go from there if i decide to lead a deal so um you know uh, you, I think, you know, I mentioned time earlier that we don't have a, enough of it and it's fleeting, um, but you've, it, you find the time for the things that matter the most. And, um, you know, when you meet a founder that, you know, like I said, has that spark, then I'm always willing to find the time. So, you know, between Naya and then Cap Table Coalition, I'm also the chair of Pledge LA, which is an initiative between um, the mayor's office of Los Angeles and the tech and uh, VC ecosystem. We really want to create a more diverse, more inclusive, more equitable uh, tech and VC ecosystem. And so what are the initiatives that we can do uh, within LA uh, and Southern California to make sure and ensure that that happens? Um, so again, all of this work I'm doing is, is all very aligned to sort of one central purpose is to like, how do we create a more equitable and just society and how does VC and uh, the tech industry sort of have a role and stake in making sure that's possible and um, you know that's that's how I do it like it's all aligned um, and um, I go to yoga at night <laughs> to balance myself <laughs> yoga helps to balance me indeed uh, I like that term minoritized mm. um, I've kind of struggled a little bit with the the language, mm -hmm. right? Because A, because it's changing and B, because it's just, you know, words carry so mm -hmm. much weight, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't love the term minority because mm -hmm. um, it kind of, you know, feels like less than. And so I've been using right. words like, un, you know, underrepresented. Right. Um, and then it's, you know, the question of like, you know, well, who does that include or mm -hmm. not include? So mm -hmm. it gets complicated, but I like that word minoritized. That's that's a new one for me. Yeah, I think uh, I think it it makes sense, right? Especially if you just think about women, right? We're not a minority, and actually, we've been minoritized. And then I think that you know, you said underrepresented. What I have started, and I started saying uh, several years ago, instead of underrepresented, I've started actually saying underestimated. Right? right? Women, again, are not underrepresented in this society. We're just not. We are, however, underestimated, right? That bias of, you know, whether or not women belong, whether or not we um, can do something. Um, and this goes for a lot of other groups as well that have been minoritized. But, you know, that, that fundamental part is really like we've been underestimated. And that bias then tells people that we can't or shouldn't or you know, uh, don't deserve to be in certain places at certain tables. And, you know, um, it is sort of just rooted in that underestimation that like why we're not in some places. And so 
I've moved away from saying minority to minoritized, moving away from underrepresented to underestimated. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That makes sense. Um, it, it's also something I wanted to ask you about in more detail, which is, I mean, just here are some of the stats. I know you know all these, mm-hmm. but um, for, for other people, less than 3% of any VC partner uh, VC partners are black, less than 1% are Latino, Latina, mm-hmm. and 17% are female, yeah. as far as the, the latest data I've looked at. But that's that's even overestimating it, yeah. right? Because if you look at the dollars that are managed, it's, it's basically, uh, for all of those groups, 4% are, are about are managed by f- uh, female and let's say, uh, let's say broadly minoritized mm-hmm. groups. What is driving this mm-hmm. disparity? And, and what, what are the biggest levers you think that you know, we can pull as an industry? Well, so because you're mentioning stats, I'll say this. Um, 97% of all capital, and that's just not venture, but all, the, all money, right, in this world is managed by men. 97% in venture is really small when you think about private equity, hedge, everything, right? All it added all up, trillions of dollars, 97% of all of that is actually managed by men, and in particular, managed by white men. Um, and so when you think about that, you imagine this pie, right? Over time, the pie just continues to get bigger. It gets bigger and bigger. That share, that 97% hasn't moved much at all, right? So when we think about the 2% and the 3%, the 4%, right? We're, we're talking about so small amounts. Um, and so I remind myself all the time of this number, right? Because then what it tells me is why haven't we moved the needle any, in, like, in a significant way? Um, and the only thing that I can describe it or sort of put a finger on the why is that some people just don't want to relinquish power, right? Some people just don't want to let the bag go. And um, if we imagine how people have come to be money managers, essentially, right? They've done all the things in the correct way, in the very traditional way, whether it's you know, going to a certain school and then working on Wall Street and being a banker and all those kinds of things, then the numbers of women and other minoritized people in those spaces are relatively small. And so then if you want to get into venture and you didn't go down that path, right, then it's not likely that you're going to get there. And so like we have this sort of cascading effect. In my mind, we have this cascading effect that uh, prevents those who are in power and control who gets access to capital to deploy as a major barrier. Um, and that's just, the, you just can't deny that, that it is, it is how it is. And so like, what do we do to sort of push, push past that, right? To, to change that um, is I think something that we're still grappling with. Wow, well, well described. I mean, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. And it, it's also good to keep in mind mm-hmm. how young you know, venture capital is as, a, as an asset class, That's right? right. It's, it was only created like 60, 70 years yeah. ago. I mean, it's like brand new in the grand scheme of finance. Um, but yes, I, I, it seems like traditionally there were these kind of, you know, well-worn paths mm-hmm. that were taken. Um, and then I'm, I'm a big believer in affinity bias. Mm-hmm. Like I, I tend to think there's you know, I, I mean, I generally think very well of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes mm-hmm. too much. But um, but I tend to think that a lot of it has to do with, like, I'm not, you know, so, some people might not purposely be excluding other people, but they're, mm-hmm. they just think of themselves. Right. And they think of, like, well, this is what I did or mm-hmm. this is, you know, kind of what my growing up was like mm-hmm. or, oh, we went to the same, you know, the same boarding school or things mm-hmm. like that. So so that's that's what I've seen. But, I mean... I feel like things are moving in the right direction. It just doesn't feel like it's fast enough and it doesn't, and it just feels like the mountain is so high to climb. Right, and like I said, you've got this pie, 
97%, right, is, is controlled by this one group. And like you said, there's that affinity bias. And so even as we make headway, right, even when we make, you know, what we consider to be certainly in 2021, right, there seem to be a lot of strides made, right? Um, several of our friends and others that we know um, raise funds that we would consider to be really great size funds. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, if the pie just continued to get bigger and our slice either remains the same size or dwindles in any year, right, then it also still feels like we haven't made that much of a stride. So there's this like, for me, it's always sort of that back and forth of like, well, the pie's getting bigger, right? And so is our slice getting bigger in comparison to the the other um, parts. And so um, I'd like to think that we have made progress. I know that we've made progress, but I still feel a sense of urgency that it's not enough. It's not fast enough. Um, and can we go faster? Can we do more? And my answer will always be yes, always. Right. And I mean, I think to that point, my because of my beliefs around uh, affinity bias, mm -hmm. I tend to believe that that more capital needs to be put in the hands of GPs mm -hmm. that are actually writing the checks. Like there was a stat that was uh, came out recently that said uh, female VCs are twice as likely to invest in female founders, and That's I think right. that that to me is is a trend that. Is, is probably consistent around all different types of people. That's right. That's so, right. So the more we can diversify the, the venture capital base, the better. Now, and, and then, you know, so that flows downstream, mm -hmm. but it also begs the question, does that flow up, upstream as well? Like, is that necessary as well? Um, it's a tough question. Uh, I think the easy answer would be yes, right? Um, but the how, how we do that and how we um, make those changes, I think, is, is something that hasn't been answered um, or figured out. Uh, yet. Um, so, yeah. I don't know if you have an answer, Joe, but I I, um, I know that, you know, one of the stats that I uh, recently read is like, you know, women GPs are, like you said, more than twice as likely to write a, a check into women um, founders. And I think as an aggregate, um, like, uh, diverse, a group, a, a group of diverse um, fund managers are 21% more likely to write checks into a group of diverse founders, right? And that's, so, so to your point, like it's probably across, it, it, we, we know that to be true because the data proves that out. We, we haven't talked about how many LPs, right? Women and others um, who have been minoritized are writing the checks right downstream to to fund managers like you and others right and there's not that much diversity at that level either right and so i again i think that there's i always like describe it as like you know there's chaos happening right and when there's chaos happening. Um, and I'm sure like you walk in sometimes to, to your living room and there's Legos and there's all kinds of things all <laughs> over the place. And like, which Lego do you grab first? Right? Which one? There's toys, there's Legos, there's all kinds of things. But which one do you grab first? Well, you just have to start somewhere. Right? And so w w what I what I sort of see in my mind is that like during that chaos, the Legos and toys and everything are everywhere. You just have to start grabbing. But then what happens when your son is also at the toy chest and still pulling things out, right? And dumping that onto the ground. We still just have to keep on picking up. And I feel that that's where we're at, right? The kids are still dumping Legos and toys out. You're grabbing and now you've got your hands full of Legos and, and, and all kinds of things and trucks and dolls and, and everything. And still there's more coming out. And so I think that's oftentimes how I feel, but I still have to just keep on picking up. Right. And I feel like that's where we're at. We're like, OK, I need I know that I see that we need to have more, um, you know, fund managers that look like you and I. 
great, let's do it. Like, let's fund more people. But then, like, we don't see the fact that there's, like, this larging, this uh, pie that's getting bigger. These LPs are writing, you know, more massive size checks. There's all these things happening all at the same time. And you're like, is it making a difference? Is it truly making a difference, right? In some years, it feels like, yes, we've done it. And in other years, most recent year, we're just like, oh, no, maybe that wasn't enough. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, I'm just going to keep on grabbing the Legos that I see. This analogy is really working for me. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I assume you've picked up a lot of Legos every day, every day. Um, no, that's really working for me. I mean, I, I do feel like the tide is is changing, at least from all the conversations I'm having with mm -hmm. LPs. Like it, it feels like. It's moving from an intentionality to action. Mm. Um, and, and again, like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's small, small steps, mm -hmm. but I do feel like steps are being made. I mean, and one thing that, um, that resonates when, when we talk about, you know, having um, diverse teams, you mentioned a stat around like diverse venture mm -hmm. partnerships, mm -hmm. uh, Harvard Business School, review uh, did a study in 2018, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but that basically said venture capital firms that are uh, heterogeneous mm -hmm. actually outperform 26 to 32%. It's uh, Professor Paul Gompers, mm -hmm. um, who, is, who is one of the professors who worked on that. And that's, that's pretty intriguing as well, right? Because um, when you start just looking at the numbers and performance, people's eyes, like regardless of like whatever their biases are, they start to say, huh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. If I can make more money, then uh, you know, I increase my returns. It's interesting. You say that's intriguing, right? So I'll push back a little bit. Is it intriguing, right? Is it, is it really intriguing? Is, it, is that a surprise to us, right? At this point, especially you know, 2018, is that really intriguing? Or is it something that should tell us Wow, we've royally screwed up right. for a long time. Right. And how do we, like, in the most immediate way, get on the right train? We've been going the wrong direction for a long time, right? right? And this is just like plain as day, right? Um, here it is, factually. And what are you going to do about it right now? Not like, huh? I think what people have done is go, huh? <laughs> That's intriguing. And so by saying, huh, that's intriguing, it gives you um, it gives you time to pause, to like settle in with that. And I don't think that we have time to settle in with it. Mm. You have to take that information, right? Those facts, and you have to act upon it. Because I think that to sort of like settle in the intrigue gives us time to like settle into it, right? Get comfortable with it. And I don't think we should get comfortable with that. I think we should be really, truly uncomfortable with the fact that we've been doing things wrong, right? And we have to like move to the side that should actually make us comfortable. Move to the side of those, <laughs> those, those fund managers, right? Who are heterogeneous, right? In that way. And yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I, I, I agree in that. Um it shouldn't be intriguing. No, that's <laughs> it, right. should it shouldn't be. be. And, and I, that's and right. I, and I do feel like uh, for a lot of people, you know, the light bulb goes off, right? And mm -hmm. they're like, well, intuitively that would make sense. Like we've all worked on school projects together. Right. And like when people disagree and they have different opinions or different backgrounds, like that is almost always additive. So um, I agree with you. <laughs> the And I agree with your sense of urgency. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. You, we're going to talk about your journey, mm -hmm. but like given the state of where things are today and where we think they're going, what advice would you have for aspiring investors um, from underrepresented groups? Maybe they're operators like you used to be. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're, you know, in, in, maybe they're not even in tech, right? Which we're going to talk about. But like what, what would your advice be to, to those folks? To the founders in particular? Uh, founders or, or, or aspiring investors. Ah, well, listen, I think that the best investors um, are those people who have the best relationships with founders. And so 
I think aspiring investors uh, should root themselves in founder relationships um, and um, root themselves in what types of problems are being solved and the why and what brings a particular founder to that journey or to that point in their lives where they want to tackle something. Um, I think for me, like, and we're going to talk about my, my journey, but like, my initial sort of like pathway was like leaning in and supporting founders long before I wrote any check to anyone. Um, and so while I recognize that all founders are, are different, right, in how they think and how they solve problems, which is the beauty of it all, um, I, I think that being a champion and advocate of founders is probably the 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 key to it. And so b before you even start writing a check, you sort of pause and say, how can I help this particular founder? What can I do um, with a, a, a sort of a, an eye to and a pathway towards um, being founder friendly, being you know founder centric in that uh, sense, and and um, you know spending as much uh, time as you possibly can with founders. Yeah. Value add. Yeah, um, yeah I, I agree in that. Um, I, I often tell people, you can be a VC. You can do everything a VC does except write the check. That's right. Right? And that's usually a good path to not only learning what it's like to add value, but also to figure out if you like it. Like a lot of people think they would like being an venture investor, and then they get into it, and they're like, oh, this isn't sexy. This I isn't always, fun. Yeah, like <laughs> I tell people all the time, this is not sexy work. Right? <laughs> it is not sexy work at all. And I, it's it's funny because I think you're like part therapist, and you're part like accountant, and you're like part, you know, lawyer, and you're like all these things that you like I didn't realize. Um, but here, here I am. Um, and... Uh, I, but I think that the core and the central thing is like you're a really good listener, right? You're a really good listener. You're a really good um, person who understands and, and can sort of be empathetic to founders. And so I, that's why I say like that part therapist is probably really key and really critical because, you know, I would say 90 percent of um, the time it's just not sexy. It is not sexy <laughs> at all. No. I agree. Well, let, let's... Um Let's shift the conversation to you, and um, let, let, let's just start way back. Like, what was it like growing up in Seattle, and, like, how are some of your early, like, lessons or experiences, like, kind of shaped you? Um, really great question. Um, so I am not um, ashamed to say it, um, but my mother had two children by the time she was 19. She did not finish high school. Um, and my brother and I, my older brother and I, uh, actually were taken away from, um, our mother, um, at a very young age. I probably was less than one at that point in my life and I was never returned to her. Um, so I tell that story because statistically I should not be here with you, uh, you know, at this mic. And it's not to say that I don't belong here, I don't deserve to be here, but like just from a stats, you know, um, uh, sort of way to think about it. Someone who's born to uh, a teenage mom, to someone who didn't graduate from high school, usually based on, you know, statistically doesn't make it this far. And so uh, very, very humble beginnings. Um, ultimately, I was raised by my father as a single father. Um, my dad, um, uh, you know, was in the Navy. He finished high school um, and uh, spent time in the Navy. Um, and, you know, my upbringing in Seattle was one of being a latchkey kid, spending a lot of time by myself um, after school, watching a lot of um public television, um, cooking shows, and like, you know, obviously educational types of things, reading a lot. I was a really curious kid. Um, and I was, it was really curious, but I didn't oftentimes have a lot of people around me to ask questions to. So I did a lot of like writing and reading and thinking and um, writing questions down. Um, so I've always been one of those kids that had on their um, 
on their report card that little code that says talks too much. <laughs> I, I needed an outlet once I got to school. <laughs> and so I did that um, because I spent a lot of time alone. But, um, you know, a lot of love, um, a, a support system, um, and um, people who genuinely believed in me, but didn't always know what that meant, right? Um, I grew up with the sense that I was supposed to go to college, um, but there wasn't anyone who really understood how you were supposed to go to college, what you needed to do. So there was a lot of figuring things out on my own. Um, so, you know, um, I, I went to college and in, in Seattle, um, went to the best university in the state of Washington, uh, the University of Washington. I'm a Husky. Um, it was a big deal in my family to go to college. It was a big deal in my family for me to graduate four years later. Um, and uh, so that's that's the beginning and the origin of the story of me. One thing that I like to tell people even now, and it, it didn't dawn on me until many years later, is that you know, I grew up in Seattle in the shadows of Microsoft and Amazon and Starbucks and, you know, Boeing and Warehouse or some like major companies, like, like amazing founder stories. I didn't know anybody who worked for any of those companies. There was no one in my neighborhood. There was no one in my family um, who worked at any of those companies. I knew they existed. Um, I grew up in the shadows of those companies and these giants, um, but had no connection to it. And I always like to say, like, how do you dream of being a marine biologist if you've never felt sand between your toes? You can think about it, right? You can think about it. You can read about it. You can Google it. You can do all those things. But like, does it really seep in for you? Right. And I didn't know what was possible. Right. I didn't know what was possible because part of my life was, you know, um, sheltered or not sheltered, but like I was there was clear divisions and lines and barriers. They were invisible. They were there, but I didn't recognize them. I didn't know what was on the other side. I didn't know that there was another side. This was just the life that I was living. And so it wasn't until I look back, you know, much later in life that I said, oh, wow. Like, you know, what would my life have been like, right? If someone worked at Microsoft in my family, if, you know, um, a neighbor was an engineer, you know, at Boeing, right? Like what my life would have been uh, like. And it's not to like sort of like bemoan that, but it's the reality of sort of like how our society is, is constructed in a way that sort of, uh, you know, serves as barriers for people sort of dreaming what's possible. Um, but I'm very thankful that um, there were small seeds planted in me very young. Um, and that while I saw a lot of things that were impossible, I'm very thankful for my dad sort of raising me in a way that was like very like, you can do anything. But I wasn't always sure what that anything was. Um, but because he sort of planted that seed that anything was possible, um, that I just needed to understand what the possibilities were, that here's where I'm at today. Whoa, that was that was amazing. Yeah. I, I did not know all that background. That's what I love about these podcasts is, is that we get to go so deep. Yeah, underdog, the quintessential yeah. underdog. I yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, yeah, and then I became a teacher. <laughs> yes, I want to hear that too. So, um, but just but just not to lose the point, mm -hmm. the the not knowing what you don't know, mm. right? That is so critical um like so f I, I mean you know I, growing up i didn't i had no idea what an engineer was yeah. right like i thought it was like a train conductor mm -hmm. and then 
you know, I, I applied to school for math, and then like I met a, another guy in my high school or who, who was at Lehigh where, where I was accepted. He was like, hey, have you thought about engineering? I'm like, no, I'm not into trains. He's, he's like, no, no, it's not like that. And so um, he was like, oh, you can apply math, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I kind of called up the school. I said, I want to be an engineer. They were like, see ya. All right, see ya, <laughs> see ya. But, but, um, but it's that exposure. That's right. Um, and I mean, presumably because of the internet, I mean, you know, you and I grew up like without the internet, basically, right? We, we had TV, right? But presumably with the internet, there's more access to this. Mm-hmm. But, but I also feel like, you know, our, our country and like probably the world more generally is so culturally transfixed, mm-hmm. right? And, and isolated in different ways. So I, I wonder if there's been a lot of progress. Um, yeah, there's been progress. Yeah. There's, there's been progress. Um, and I think that the runway keeps on getting longer. So we keep Mm. going further, right? There's progress, but then there's greater inequities and that just keeps on furthering out. So it feels like there's this like never ending sort of like where the finish line is continues to like move forward, right? We're moving forward and yet the finish line too is moving forward at the same time, sometimes faster, maybe sometimes slower. Sometimes we see the finish line, sometimes we don't. Um, Nevertheless, we are moving forward. There is progress. Um, I'm very happy to say my younger sister has gone to college um, and um, you know I have nieces um, who dream of going to college. And so I consider, and I have cousins who've gone to college and have great careers. I have several engineer cousins now. Um, you know, so there's progress, certainly in my family, certainly in, in communities that I grew up in, um, in the communities that I live in now, there is progress. Uh, and yet we still have much further to go. And I think that's why it's so important, you know, for people like us to like leave breadcrumbs, right? Yeah. In terms of like, this is how, I mean, that's like partially like yeah. why we're doing this, right? Is like, this is how Kiana got to where she mm-hmm. is today. On on LinkedIn, it's like, you know, she looks like a superhero. Uh, but if you hear her story, mm-hmm. you can tell like, okay, there was a, there was a, a long path there. And I, and I don't want to, skip over your point uh, about the finish line getting longer. That's a really compelling analogy, which I have to think more about. But, yeah. but, but okay, so, so I, I want to just understand like this path, right? Because you were an anthropology major, mm-hmm. you were a teacher, a dean of students, an ed tech startup operator, and now an investor, and I would say thought leader. What did that journey look like? And like what kind of pulled you in those, in, in, you know, along that path? Um, um, so I became a teacher because I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing after I graduated undergrad. Um, one of the most, um, sort of, um, impactful, inspiring people in my life. And remember I had, you know, somewhat of a rough, um, sort of go at life early on, um, was my sixth grade teacher, Miss Chisholm. Um, she was just a force to be reckoned with and, um, I became her. I became a sixth grade teacher. Um, I love teaching. Um, I taught English and history and um, sixth grade, and that's a wild and funny bunch of, of, of children, 11 and 12 year olds, um, all the kinds of things that their, their bodies and their minds and changes that are happening. It's, it's the best year ever. Um, I love teaching. I was a teacher for five years and then I was a dean for two years, so spent a total of seven years in this one particular middle school in LA. I loved it. I absolutely love teaching. I love being an educator. I just didn't know if I was better at something else. I started teaching when I was really young, um, and I figured, you know what? Maybe I should try something else. And if I fail at that something else, I can go back to teaching. And um, and I think I, at the time, I, I w- it just made sense to me. 
um, you know, looking back and as we look at history, what we what we realize is that Gen X is the first generation um, of people that started to have multiple careers, right? After boomers and that like in between group after the boomers, I forgot what they're called, um, but. Um, we're the first generation that started to have multiple careers and a, a generation that said it's okay to change. It's okay to spend, you know, um, a half of your career as one thing and decide you want to do something else. Um, and of course, family and friends were like, wait, you're going to leave? You're like on this trajectory to do all these amazing things and you're an administrator and all these things. And I was just like, well, yeah but I want to try something else. And um, again, sort of that fearlessness of like trying something else. Uh, you, you fail and you can try go back. Um, and that um, try something else led me to, uh, you know, um, ed tech uh, was a good transition. I was an educator moving into the tech space, sold a product. It was a B2B SaaS product uh, into schools and districts. And I became a trainer uh, on that software and m quickly moved up from trainer to a project manager to senior project manager to VP of ops. Uh, and the last role that I had in that first company was interim CEO. So um, yeah, I just learned that I can do other things and I might actually be good at those other things. And uh, so that was just, um, you know, teacher to tech, and then, you know, spending a lot of time um, in the tech space, in particular at tech, didn't see a lot of people that looked like me. Um, and um, when I did see people that looked like me and founders and others, they, they sort of gravitated towards me um, like a magnet. And they, one, one friend tells me, he saw me at a conference and he goes, she looks like she knows what she's doing. And we became huh. fast friends. <laughs> and uh, he was early stage uh, founder. And, um, you know, so that's, I think, how I was able to sort of, again, root myself in like this founder first sort of journeys and, um, and really helping and supporting founders and sort of, I think, telling them the things that I had experienced and how I sort of did my work and what strategies that they could um, push on and levers they could pull. And here we are. Um, now they call me an investor. I love it. It's, uh, I, t I tend to think that teaching um, is, is actually kind of one of the under-discussed skills that is necessary in VC, right? Because in, in terms of how do you help entrepreneurs, it's usually sharing lessons yeah. from either your own experience or experience mm -hmm. working with other entrepreneurs. And um, I, I think that's critical. I mean, that's something I, I, I would be attracted to, you know, teaching and, and you know, I've, I've done some, some work there. And, uh, and I feel like that's something that I like doing as well. So I think we have that in common. You know, one thing that I would say about, you know, one being an anthropology major, right, which is really just the study of humans, right, from language to culture to geography, all these things. And then being a teacher, right, I, you know, at that point or in, in this point in my life have had hundreds of kids, right, that I've been responsible for. And as I look back, like, those were just young humans, right? And, you know, you're in a classroom of 30 plus children, right? These young humans who have, you know, all the things that we all have in a company too. You have, you know, different types of learners, you have different types of people who have different skill sets, all of those things. And so I figured, well, what I was able to do was sort of take this sort of this idea and this concept of how do you treat, you know, these learners, right? This classroom full of all these different types of learners, they learn different ways, they gravitate to different things, they have different types of interests. And how do you sort of pull all of those people, right? These young people forward in a mission. And I think it's very much the same way if you're the founder of a company, you're leading a team, like how do you get these different individuals, right, to get on one accord together, marching towards one particular goal when 
I was a teacher, I needed to get them from early man to the fall of Rome in a span of nine months, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, you think about like if you've got a push out product and you've got KPIs and you've got OKRs and you 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 break it down by quarter or a year and those all things are important. You got to pull all those people and get them to one unified goal, right? And and place and time. And I feel like because I was a really good teacher, if I don't say my if I say it myself, I was a good teacher, and so. It made me a good listener. It made me a good person to recognize when someone was having a bad day, um, you know, a bad week um, for any number of reasons. And how do you inspire? How do you create? How do you catalyze, uh, captivate people in a way to sort of have this shared goal? And I think, you know, good leaders um, have the capacity to do that. And certainly I think some of the best leaders that we have on this earth are teachers. And if you can do all that with sixth graders, with <laughs> all those hormones and whatnot, um, it's e easy to do it with adults. Yeah. Um, what would you say, it, we're going to go to the personal philosophy side of things here. Yeah. Um, what would you say is your superpower? Ooh, my superpower. Um, listening and connecting on a human level with people. Yeah. And... Um, listening and understanding and really sort of figuring out where people want to go and and then trying to latch myself on to how do I help. I think that's my superpower. What's one thing you believe that other people do not believe? Ooh, your my most, contrarian. Your contrarian opinion. Okay, drum roll. <laughs> Lots of has happened and had been said about how do we sort of move this needle further and faster? And some people believe that the way to sort of diversify, create more equity and diversity within this ecosystem is if we get more check writers that look like you and me. And while I believe that does need to happen, I do not believe that it is, an, it is enough. And I, don't, I do not believe that that's the pathway to significant change or an overhaul to how this ecosystem looks. My most contrarian belief is that we actually need to get more white men at this point in time because they are the ones who have, uh, uh, you know, have more money than under management and hold most of the power and control over capital in this country. We actually need to get them to write checks. Um, it is not enough. You could give a hundred more black fund managers, you know, $50 million funds, and it still wouldn't be enough. It just wouldn't. Um, and um, so my most contrarian belief is that white men in particular, we need to sort of educate them in a way that gets them to take the facts that we know, and you shared that earlier, that writing checks into you know, women who um, over-index and are more successful as an aggregate than other founders and all these other stats that we know to be true, if we can just get them to believe those facts and then thus follow the money and write checks into those types of founders and into fund managers that look like you and me, then we actually get faster, much further, and we would have greater equity um, and we would have, in my belief, a more just and uh, better society. And that is just how I, what, what I believe to be true. It's just not enough for me and you to have more money under management. We actually need mo more white men to believe that, um, you know, a founder that looks like you and me should not be underestimated. Yeah. Right. And, and to not be intrigued by that data, not but to, to be believe intrigued. it. No pausing, right? Let's act. With urgency. <clears throat> Is there a quote you think about or, or live by? I, I do really believe that it is possible to do well by doing good. Um, and I think that quote and sort of that sort of mantra extends across every aspect of my life. Like, what does that look like, right, in terms of the companies we, we, we develop? Um, what... Um, 
what types of problems should be solved for. Um, I think it just extends to every aspect of my life. And um, I always think about like, what's the thing that I can do um, that does a little bit of good in this world? Um, and what sort of impact that would have, right? So it's not about impact or, you know, pe people sort of see impact investing and things like that to be sort of like a negative or charity or nonprofit. I'm simply saying that if you see a problem in this world and there's this idea and this concept around, um, you know, what are the things that need to be changed fundamentally? There's a founder that I really like, uh, uh, Chris Bennett, he's the founder of Wonder School, right? He sort of sees the problem and the urgent issue around, you know, childcare in this country, right? He's building it a phenomenal business around doing something that solves a major problem. It is doing good in this world and he can fundamentally do well as a businessman um, doing that good. And so that's the philosophy that I have and, and, and that I live by. Absolutely. And clearly we share that, yeah. that point of view. <laughs> um, last question for you. Uh, what would you want or what would you want to say at the end of your life and or what would you want said about you? I would like people to say that I was a really good teacher. And I would like people to believe and sort of know wholeheartedly that everything that I'm attempting to do now and will do and have done has been like an act of selflessness. Like I'm doing what I do now because I believe that there are a thousand little Kianas out there in the world, thousands of them who deserve, who have the capability to be doing this and far more, far greater than I can ever do in my lifetime. And um, so I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for the little Kiana who had a lot of questions and no one to answer them. Um, and the little Kiana who, you know, in the summertime got free lunch at the park. Um, and the little Kianas that exist in this world today that will this summer get free lunches in the park. And that might be their only meal that they have today. Um, I'm doing that so that young women and girls and others um, know that anything is possible. And then it's my job and other people's job to remove any barrier, right, that exists, that serves to be a barrier or a nuisance for them actually propelling forward. And I know those barriers ex exist. It is my job to remove those barriers. It is not enough to um, throw down a rope or to put down a ladder or you said earlier to sort of have breadcrumbs, right? I want there to be a clear path, Joe. Mm. I, want, I don't want there to be any barriers. I want them to see and to grab on to their hopes and their dreams without any barriers. And it doesn't mean that that means no hard work and no effort. It just means that there aren't system, system, systemic um, and structural barriers that actually serve and have been built to actually be a barrier, right? And to to lock certain people out. And, and I, so I want people to, to say that like she did everything in her power to fundamentally break down every barrier that was possible. And then she didn't believe that a ladder or a rope was enough. Beautiful. We can't, we can't top that. Um, <laughs> and you are the master of analogies. <laughs> I'm seeing now the teacher see, come out here. Now you see the teacher in me. Um, and, and my biggest compliment I can give to you is like, I believe every single word you say, mm. right? You are, you just come across as one of the most authentic people. Mm. And, um, Thank you for being so candid, for sharing your thoughts, your 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 stories, your experiences, and um, it's just you know a pleasure to be able to work with you and and uh, and to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much.
Thank you, Joe. And I'm uh, looking forward to doing a lot more work with you in the future. And I hope this was, um, you know, awesome and, and epic for all your listeners. Absolutely. And and how can if you know if people fall in love with you, how can they follow you? Um, or, or keep track of what you're doing? I'm definitely on Twitter. Um, you can just, you know, find me on Twitter and definitely uh, reach out to me or DM me if you want to talk a little bit further. I'm happy to always do that. And uh, definitely follow Cap Table Coalition on Twitter and check us out online um, at our website, captablecoalition.com. We're doing really uh, amazing things and we have uh, big plans for the coming years. And so we want more people to be a part of the coalition, sign up to be a community member, um, sign the pledge, the diversity rider pledge as well. If you're a company uh, leader and CEO that you want to pledge to, you know, diversify your own cap table, um, take us up on that offer and we'll help to uh, see that um, possible for you. Absolutely. And and uh, the cap table coalition, just to clarify, is is, uh, you know, who, who's eligible to join the, the Captable Coalition a- as a member? Accredited investors, obviously that's an important thing. Um, accredited investors and um, people who believe in this mission, right? Who believe that Captable should be uh, full of diverse and strategic and operators. And so if you're one of those types of people, you're an operator, you have deep ex- expertise in any industry, you're accredited and you, you believe that you have a value you add to provide founders, then you should sign up. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you again, Kiana. We really appreciate having you. Thanks, Joe. All right.